80 verses in chapter 1. Not all chapters will be that long. Let's uh, pray together. Our Father and our God, we come to you in the name of Jesus. As we open your word, we pray most of all that uh, you would help us to have faith to respond to Jesus Christ, even as uh, we see, as we have seen uh, John the Baptist while still in the womb, and Elizabeth, and Mary, and now Zechariah, respond in faith to him. Father, um, I pray that you would pour out your spirit, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. When one of Mandy's friends, is this, is this loud enough? Good. When one of Mandy's friends comes um, from out of town to stay with us um, for a week or so, basically during that week, I'm a third wheel. You know, they're talking, 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 and I'm just kind of over doing my own thing. It's, frankly, it's not a, a terrible thing. <laughs> I get to be a bachelor for a week, get to, to pursue some of my... Um, my hobbies and and do some extra reading and and things like that. Um, Mary moved in with Zechariah and Elizabeth for three months before returning home. Remember, Zechariah could still uh, not talk because he failed to believe the angel's message. And he must have really been a third wheel in that household as Mary and Elizabeth uh, discussed ad nauseum plans for the, uh, the new nursery, so to speak. It appears that Mary uh, left for her home shortly before Elizabeth gave birth. Some speculate that Mary may have stayed until the birth of, um, of Elizabeth's son. It's difficult to know. Uh, at any rate, in keeping with the angel's promise, Elizabeth, gave birth to a son. For Elizabeth to give birth in her, old, her, in her old age, it became a cause for celebration in the entire community. Elizabeth's neighbors and her relatives all rejoiced. They all turned out to see the uh, child's circumcision. And according to God's command in Genesis 17, every male child was to be circumcised on the eighth day. After he was born. This was a sign uh, of the covenant. Circumcision was the sacrament that marked um, the baby's instrument or, or entrance rather into the covenant community. Because he was entering into the covenant community, it was customary also to formally give him his name on that day, on the eighth day after he was born, on the day in which he was circumcised. Uh, and to give his name uh, in a formal way to the entire community that had gathered. Jewish culture was like um, many cultures where the firstborn is typically given the father's name. This is true in southern culture. I was born and raised in Georgia. Um, I am a junior. My name is William Wesley Holland, Jr., because my dad's name is William Wesley Holland. Uh, also, uh, Will, my son, has my father's first name, and he has uh, Mandy's father's first name. So Will's name is uh, William Blair Holland. 
had we not followed uh, Southern cultural practices, Will's name would have been John Calvin Holland. Uh, Everyone expected that Elizabeth would announce that her child's name would be Zechariah. They'd have a big Zech and a little Zech. But Elizabeth surprised everyone by calling him John. And there was an uproar. Immediately all her, her family and her friends began to protest. In their consternation, the people appealed to her husband. They appealed to Zechariah. Well, what could Zechariah say? He hadn't spoken in nine months. Look at verses 61 and 62. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. Social and cultural expectations can be a very powerful influence. There's a great presumption, presumption that we must conform to the accepted cultural patterns. Society uh, exerts pressure for us to conform, to practice what society practices, to believe what society believes. Our young people think that they are being nonconformist when they step outside the way that they have been brought up in a Christian household. But really what they're doing is they are stepping uh, into the conformity of secular society. When they step inside secular society, they are told what they must believe, how they must think, what they must say. And there's the punishment of ostracism and shame that our Uh, that our society gives towards anyone who bucks the acceptable norms. As Christians, we must swim upstream. We must go against the cultural flow if we are going to conform our lives to the commandments of God. To cast off the commandments of God and to conform our lives to the norms of society is worldliness. Let me remind you what 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17 says about worldliness. The Apostle John says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with all its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. And so as the whole town is staring at Zechariah, expecting him to overrule his wife, expecting him to conform to the cultural norm, Zechariah motioned for a writing tablet to be given him. And our text records that he wrote his name is John. Zechariah actually wrote it more emphatically. Literally, the Greek text reads, John is his name, placing his name at the head of the sentence. Immediately, you know what happened. His mouth was loosened for the first time in nine months. Look at verse 64. And immediately, his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke blessing God. 
Now, there's a principle here in verse 64 that we must notice. Zechariah did not receive his voice again until he acted in faith. There's an error that persists in American Christianity. As long as you give mental assent to certain facts about the gospel, then you're saved and you're never to doubt your salvation. I had fallen prey to that error when I was 15. One Sunday night, I walked an aisle in the church um, because the pastor was saying, anybody here who's not a Christian with every head bowed, every eye closed? Well, I wasn't a Christian. I didn't want to lie to God, but I wasn't really ready to give my life to God. And I thought, what am I going to do? I'm not a Christian. God's going to know if I don't raise my hand. So I raised my hand. You young man, come forward. And so I came forward. The pastor prayed with me, and I was told to never doubt my salvation because God was going to, I mean, because Satan uh, was going to try and tell me that I, that I wasn't a Christian. And so from the time I was 15 till the time I was 18, God was trying to convince me that I wasn't a Christian. Um, and I never doubted my salvation. Um, I became a Christian during my, the, near the end of my freshman year in college. It's not enough for a person to say that he or she has faith if the evidence of your life proves otherwise. Someone has said that genuine faith is like calories. You can't see them, but you can see their results, right? Our lips and our lives must agree with each other. James chapter 2, verse 26 says, For as the body apart from the Spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. If your faith is an empty shell, if your faith is all alone without works, without anything of substance, of substance to show for it, your faith is dead and you are outside of Jesus Christ. True, genuine, saving faith is living. It's active. Thomas Manton says that faith is the life of the soul that animates the whole body of obedience. Our life conforms to Christ when we are Christians. Not because we are good people. Not because of our willpower. Rather, our faith take, takes hold of the Lord Jesus Christ. We love Him. Therefore, we want to follow and please Him. And almost before noticing, our life begins changing. Our thinking uh, patterns begin to be altered. And our desires are transformed. Simply because we have taken hold of Jesus Christ. And in reality, we take hold of Jesus Christ. Because he first takes hold of us. While we were still sinners, Christ loved us and gave himself for us. We are spiritually fruitful because we are simply branches. Christ is the true vine. Faith is infinitely more powerful than our self-discipline if we're going to experience life transformation. Jesus Christ changes our lives. We simply are not able. Whatever life change we bring about on our own is just temporary. 
It doesn't have any life um, in it. Zechariah had been silent for nine long months. But once God loosened his tongue, Zechariah had a lot to say. Look at verse 67. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying... And what Zechariah said in verses 68 through, 70, in, through verse 79 has come to be known uh, as the Benedictus. Uh, from, and this word Benedictus comes from Zechariah's first word in verse 68. The word blessed you see there in verse 68. In Latin, the word blessed is the word Benedictus. And so that's why this passage is called Zechariah's Benedictus. We saw Zechariah's faith in action as he emphatically insisted that his son's name was John. The Benedictus is a substance, then, of Zechariah's faith. Our faith is not blind. It's not without content. Our faith has infinite content so to speak, because our faith is rooted in God. It's anchored in Him. We don't exercise faith in our faith. We don't exercise faith in our good intentions. We exercise faith in God. We exercise faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Our lives are changed because we, by faith, take hold of God. And our faith then is the instrument by which God brings about change in our life. We take hold of Jesus. And our faith then is the instrument by which we receive the righteousness of Jesus. The forgiveness that Jesus secured for us on the cross. The resurrection life that Christ has in Himself. We have simply because by faith we have taken hold of Him. As we examine the Benedictus, we will see that Zechariah's faith was anchored in four things that were all centered in God. His faith was rooted in the faithfulness of God. It was rooted next in the Word of God. It was rooted in the mercy of God. And finally, it was rooted in the salvation of God. We see Zechariah's faith in God's faithfulness in verses 68 and 69. Just like Mary, Zechariah uses the prophetic past tense, if you'll remember from last week. So he says in verses 68 and 69, notice the past tense here. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. He is so certain that the things that God has promised are going to happen, that He speaks of them as if they, are, they have already taken place. He says God has already visited and redeemed His people in verse 68. But our Lord Jesus had not yet been born. He was still in Mary's womb at this point. He was six months away from being born. Also, verse 69 Zechariah is speaking of the horn of salvation that has already been given to the people of Israel. This horn of salvation uh, is, uh, comes through the house of David. Was Zechariah um, 
in the house of David? No, he was a Levite. He was a priest. But he's speaking of someone from the house of David, from the line of Judah, one of David's descendants that would be the horn of salvation for Israel. The horn mentioned here is not a musical instrument. The horn um, is the, the horn of a strong animal, like a bull or a rhinoceros. Um, he's speaking here of the business end of the animal, <laughs> that of a strong animal. And so, uh, the, the horn is a symbol of strength and power. In other words, one was going to come, and he says he's already come because he's so sure that he is going to come, who would be the King of kings and the Lord of lords, that he would sit on David's throne, and he would rule powerfully over the entire universe. His glory, as we remember um, Mary's uh, Magnificent, his glory was going to be over the entire universe, over heaven and earth and the entire universe. His glory would be so great. He would be powerful. He would be strong. And therefore, he is spoken as being, uh, in verse 68, a horn of salvation for us. Why could Zechariah speak of things um, yet to happen as if they had already happened? Well, first of all, he's speaking by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. I kind of passed over this in verse 67, but notice again verse 67. Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and he prophesied. John the Baptist, filled with the Holy Spirit. And he leapt within his mother's womb. Elizabeth, filled with the Holy Spirit. And she recognized that Mary had the, the Son of God, her Savior, in her womb. Mary, filled with the Holy Spirit, gave her great magnificent. And here is Zechariah, filled with the Holy Spirit. And he is prophesying. Um... Zechariah is saying these things. But he's not just a puppet saying these things. Rather, his faith is rooted and grounded uh, in God. He is saying these things because he's probably thought about them for nine long months. He didn't have a whole lot to say. He didn't have anything to say. He thought about God's faithfulness to him. He thought about the Word of God, thought about God's promises. And so, as Zechariah is speaking the things on his heart, God is also uh, speaking through him. Has God promised to receive you into um, his presence when you pass from this life into the next? Yes, he has. You can know that God is faithful to you. That's what Zechariah was doing. He was recognizing God's faithfulness. And so we can also recognize God's faithfulness. If you belong to Jesus, God is faithful to you. Um, will God bless you 
in your future life. Yes, He will. He will be faithful to you in your future. He has promised. You can trust in Him regardless what is happening in your life or what will happen uh, in your life. It, it, God's faithfulness to you is as certain His faithfulness to you tomorrow is as certain as if it has already happened. God is faithful. Root and ground your faith in Him. He is trustworthy. He will never fail you. In verse 70, um, we see that Zechariah's faith was rooted in God's Word. Look at verse 70. Uh, As he talks about God's promises uh, in the past tense, even though they've not yet happened because he's so certain of them, he knows they're going to happen because he has been told this by God's word. Verse 70, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. The prophets in Israel were not just spouting off their opinions about the, the religious or the political or the moral direction of the nation. Rather, God spoke through the prophets. When the prophets spoke, God spoke. By grounding his faith in the prophecies of the prophets, Zechariah was grounding his faith in the word of God. Zechariah recognized that the the prophecies that were given were ancient. It had been 400 years, 400 long years since the last prophet had spoken. Our nation is nowhere near 400 years old. 400 years ago, the Reformation was taking place. 400 years ago, our nation, uh, North America, had, had only recently been discovered. By grounding... Um, By grounding his faith in the prophecies of the prophets, he's grounding his faith in the Word of God. The Word of God had not become passé or obsolete for Zechariah. The Word of God never ever becomes passé or obsolete. No matter how much our secular society would like us to believe that it's just old-fashioned. The Word of God. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great. In the kingdom of heaven. God's word is abiding. God's word is true. Human authority only goes so far. God's authority. His word is always true. God has spoken in his word. Therefore. Hadn't we better listen? Shouldn't we give our full attention. To what God says? Can we be indifferent to the Bible. And legitimately call ourselves followers of Christ. Can we say that our faith is in God if we ignore and disregard His Word? Thirdly, in verses 72 and 73, we see Zechariah's faith was rooted in God's mercy. 
So he says, um, verse 73, the oath that he swore to our forefather, or rather to our father Abraham, to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear. Um, I'm sorry, I started in verse 73. I was supposed to start in verse 72. To show us the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear. Mankind is utterly unworthy of God's blessing and his salvation. Israel was a powerful illustration of this truth. Israel turned its back on God. Only in small spurts did Israel as a nation ever show anything that looked like faith and trust in God. Israel was only worthy of God's wrath and his condemnation. Particularly, or, or, but, but God promised to show mercy to Israel's fathers. Particularly, God promised Abraham that he would be a God to him and to his descendants. Genesis chapter 12, Genesis chapter 15, Genesis chapter 17, Genesis chapter 22. God bound himself to Abraham and to Abraham's children to show them mercy. Without going into a lengthy um, discussion of covenant theology, I will suffice it to say that Jesus was, was the fulfillment of God's covenant. Jesus was born into our world for the purpose of accomplishing all the promises that God made to Abraham in order that he might show sinners like us his mercy. Without the work of Christ, we all would be banished from God's mercy. Fourthly and lastly, in verses uh, 76 through 79, we see Zechariah's faith was rooted in God's salvation. Verse 76, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare His ways, to give knowledge of salvation to His people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. It's not until verse 76, over halfway through his Benedictus, that Zechariah gets around to mentioning his son. Uh, His son is called the prophet of the Most High, but he acknowledged that his son was just a forerunner. John was to prepare the way. He He was to get the rebellious nation of Israel to receive her Lord. That was his job. He was to proclaim God's salvation that was about to break into history. While acknowledging the purpose of John's life, Zechariah was rooting his faith in God's promised salvation. By sending John, God was showing his tender mercies to sinners who were so lost that they could be said to be dwelling in darkness and worthy of nothing but death. That's the meaning of verse 79 when he says to give light to those who sit in darkness or dwell in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Israel uh, did not see themselves as needing a spiritual salvation. 
They were only looking for a political salvation. They were living under the oppression of Rome. Uh, The Roman government told them when they could worship. It even went as far as to tell them how they could worship in some respects. Israel could not abide under Rome's rule. But Israel was not acknowledging that their political oppression was caused by their spiritual oppression. Verse 71, verse 74, Zechariah mentions deliverance from Israel's enemies. But he has, um, he has in his sight a spiritual deliverance, a spiritual salvation. Israel's greatest need was not deliverance from the Roman government, but rather the forgiveness of their sins. Look at verses 77 and 78. John would be called to prepare the way, verse 77, to give knowledge of salvation to His people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. The real enemy of Israel was their bondage to their sins. They needed to be freed from their enslavement, from their sinful nature. Their greatest enemy was not Rome, but their self-consumed hearts. They needed a spiritual deliverance so that they could return to God and serve and obey Him. Look at 70, verse 74 and 75. That we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve God without fear, in holiness and righteousness before Him all the days of our life. Are you free to serve God in holiness and righteousness? Or is your life ensnared and enslaved to the desires of your flesh? Are you free to delight in God's Word and in His promises? Or are you so consumed by chasing your happiness that there's no room in your soul to delight in God? Does your pursuing holiness and righteousness uh, or do you pursue holiness and righteousness because you love God? And does it fit into your list of priorities to serve God, to seek righteousness and holiness because you know He loves you? Or to put it another way, to hearken back to Zechariah's putting his faith into action. Do you have a real And genuine faith that responds to the Lord Jesus Christ as we pray together. Our Father and our God, help us all, whether we are um, new believers, whether we have been um, believers for many decades, or whether we are not yet believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, help us all to respond to the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to respond in true and genuine faith. To respond in a living and active faith that produces the works of repentance and good fruit. God, I ask that you would help us to um, take hold of the Lord Jesus Christ this morning in our response. Love Him knowing that He first loved us. We pray in His name. Amen.